This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on September 22, 2019 with fourth-way practitioner Trevor Stewart. Trevor is a student of psychology, meditation, and the Gurdjieff work. As a young adult, he worked with Buddhist teachers practicing in an intensive monastic setting for two years. Trevor has studied Gurdjieff's masterwork, Beelzebub's Tales, to his grandson intensively, employing textual, historical, and grammatical criticism, and has authored papers at the All and Everything Conference and in other venues. A member of Two Rivers Farms in Oregon, he has worked with the Gurdjieff movements in both America and Europe, and is an amateur pianist who studies the Gurdjieff to Hartman music. In daily life, Trevor runs a design and build construction firm based in Portland, Oregon. Trevor Stewart, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, it's fabulous to have you, and uh, we um, will begin with you as we begin with other first-time guests in general, which is to invite you to cast your memory back to youth and childhood and invite you to recall any incidents, any experiences, any moments that in retrospect would prefigure or be harbingers for the work that you later uh, undertook in terms of spiritual self-examination. Yeah, that's a difficult one. I would say uh, growing up Christian had an impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the most salient memory is of uh, a pastor at a church that we attended. We attended a non-denominational Christian church, and there was this big red-bearded pastor who that you could identify in, with as a red-bearded <laughs> man well, I didn't now. Know I'd be red-bearded later, uh, <laughs> but you know now I can see the connection. But anyway, he would come to church on a, a Harley Davidson. Ah. Uh-huh. And it sort of had the, this mixture of, um, and he was also a really passionate speaker, a really good speaker and presenter, um, really intelligent. So his intelligence struck me. And um, there was a, to, to my mind at the time, this is probably a type thing, but it seemed really sincere. It seemed really earnest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the kind of culture of the church, particularly the pastor or the pastor. Uh, but then the mix of the Harley Davidson and a sense of also wanting to be non-traditional, mm-hmm. I think is a, is an interesting mixture that I picked up on in the Gurdjieff work where there's this kind of, uh, you know, Gurdjieff was on the one hand kind of a rogue mm-hmm. and on the other hand, traditional and concerned with tradition. So that's one influence. Uh, as far as like later youth, I would say um, experimentation with drugs mm-hmm. and psychedelics had a pretty pivotal influence. 
just in terms of, of actually perceiving that reality had levels to it. Uh, and that was not something I was at all aware of. Was that a, uh, a conceptual experience or was it a more vivid, uh, uh, full sensory experience? <clears throat> full sensory. Yeah. So I was, I took, um, psilocybin, LSD, a couple of other things as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it just, I, one particular experience on mushrooms, uh, had the effect of completely stripping away my humanity or anything, anything other than just the fact that I was an animal mm. on the earth. It just showed me so clearly that I did not exist as a psychological entity, that there was this totally other, more direct perception of what I was. Um, it was terrifying at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was 15 or 16. Um, so, but just the sense that there could be radical shifts, uh, in consciousness was that drugs point that out when you first do drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for many people, you know, they find out that that's not a very sustainable access point and it has other, you know, neuro, uh, neurological and physiological effects over time that aren't healthy for most people, but. In any case, for me, I, there was a short period of experimenting with that, and that had a, a pretty profound influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what? So what did you do with that? With that influence? It uh, it made me curious. It made me question. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, I you know, as a teenager, just the angst of being a teenager and the suffering. I, my particular kind of suffering that I was experiencing was intense enough that I needed to find something, some way to alleviate the suffering. Uh, and so I started around 16, 17, meditating, reading books on meditation completely independently. Um, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and nobody I knew at the time was, was interested in those things. I got some books by Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And it just, I remember being 17 and sitting and just realizing that I could sense my hand and feel an aliveness inside of my hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the first time it had occurred to me that there was a difference between uh, having a visualization of my body and actually sensing my body. Hmm. Got so, it. so there's a number of questions that came up through that. And then, uh, so I would say those were kind of, the, the pastor in the church, the psilocybin experience in particular, and then uh, a couple of meditation experiences. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. Uh, yeah. So um, I guess I'm, you know, you mentioned suffering um, as a teenager, and, that, and that's what led you to explore meditation, et cetera. Um, but I'm wondering if if you if there's something was was this sort of stand what people would think of as a standard psychological uh, set of issues for teenagers or was there something special that you were dealing with um, that would be okay to talk about um, or um, or something else? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, without going into details, I think my family life was challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt had lots of friends, but felt unable. I felt emotionally closed. Mm. And if you're walking around emotionally closed, it's going to cause quite a bit of suffering and feeling yeah. of disconnection. Yeah. Sure. I think for many people that as profoundly difficult as their childhood situations are, or their own way that they're wired up internally, there's all sorts of different situations, but a feeling of connection is always, you know, that can get you through almost anything uh, as far as personal difficulties. Right. So I'd say that, that was probably the, the primary thing that was okay. difficult for me. Um, so having that, a sense of connection to your own body was a place that you start, ended up starting from, yeah, essentially. That, became, that really became the doorway. Um, and it was just a sense that I could go into my body and explore my body. And then later that turned into exploring, understanding that there were emotional blockages that could be sensed inside of the body mm-hmm. okay and opened up so the body became a doorway into um my emotional life so so did you have um i don't know uh, sports or other other body centered activities during this period that you were engaged in or or this was the body stuff was all related to the exploration of meditation and and these alternative practices after the after the consciousness exploration a little earlier. Yeah, I uh, so I played a lot of sports when I was really young. So I was always physically active, mm-hmm. um, and we were pretty well disciplined as kids. So I was doing chores. So I was very physically active and used to using my body. Mm-hmm. But by the time I was in high school, um, I had kind of moved away from group sports activities. I see. Uh, and in retrospect, I would say that's because uh, I, I wasn't able to really uh, emotionally identify with the team. Mm-hmm. I see. But, um, but no, so at that point, I was just going hiking with friends, playing a lot of music. I kind of went the musical route and artistic yeah. route. Okay. There was a lot of other things I was exploring that were kind of more solo activities. Okay. Um, so, but the, I would say whatever my upbringing was for whatever reason on an, even though being physically active, there was still, it was still a, a momentous realization that there was, there were these depths to physical experience, or I guess what I would now call embodiment. Mm-hmm. There was, a much more subtle relationship with the body that was possible. Got it. So, so from that um, early start, then how, how did your um, connection with various spiritual traditions actually unfold? Yeah. So I got, so I had a group of friends. I moved to Olympia, Washington and was going to Evergreen briefly and we had a whole group of friends who were all kind of artists and philosophers. And for some reason, the, the common denominator was we were all interested also in Gurdjieff. Really? Uh, yeah. And I, I think there's maybe there's other little pockets of young people. So Gurdjieff for me at the time, I had been into like Led Zeppelin and, you know, famous bands where there was kind of an idolized um, image of a person. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And that was able to kind of transfer over to Gurdjieff as a kind of spiritual rock star in a sense because he was so outrageous. <laughs> right. At the time, that aspect of his, his uh, you know, outward persona was, was appealing. So I'm, I'm, cu- I'm curious how that uh, connection was made, like when, uh, with you and your friend. What's the entry point? Because uh, more likely than not, it's not a uh, thorough reading of Beelzebub's tales to his grandson. So. Right. Well, you would think that, but that's actually partly what it was. Really? So, really? Yeah. So we were all um, reading in search of the miraculous. That uh, I, that that one I could give. Yeah. So that that was more of the initial starting point. The movie the movie meetings with remarkable men. Hmm. I remember my friend uh, Tyler sitting on the couch, and we were I was in the middle of in search of the miraculous, and they were plugging in meetings with remarkable men into the VCR. And he was lighting up a spliff and taking the first puff. And as the smoke exhaled, curling away from his lips, he said, this is the secret shit, man. This is the <laughs> secret shit. <laughs> this is where all the secrets are. So there was kind of this, like, you know, hashish-infused, mysterious uh, entry into uh, the Gurdjieff work, but not really the Gurdjieff work. We, we didn't even know that groups existed. Yeah. It's well, a completely it, independent and kind of occult teenager interest, late teens interest. Secret. It's it's like the secret truth. You you know the yeah. secret truth that other people right. don't. I, I get right. it. I, I I just I'm sort of comparing that to my own experience of uh, I was introduced by a friend uh, uh, who had read um, Meetings with Remarkable Men, and so he. Uh, uh, either gave me a copy or I had got a copy and read through it. <clears throat> and in particular, the chapter on the material question was, which is where Gurdjieff is sort of uh, elaborating these tales and at the same time very uh, clearly extracting, if you take it at its surface value, uh, uh, checks with multiple zeros on it from the audience. And there was something about that and just the, the, the whole image that uh, caught me. And, and that started uh, a fairly strong interest. I, I think I'd run across Ospinsky's fourth wave book, uh, but that was impenetrable to me at the time. It was just so dry. But um, the fleshiness of Meetings with Remarkable Men really captured me. And it was at a point where I was in, yeah, in college. So there, that just set up for me a... Uh, real interest so that that got catalyzed much later yeah absolutely there's there's i mean all of the characters in meetings with remarkable men are counterfeiting money painting sparrow solovia is, is counterfeiting money um vitvitskaya is fleecing people in some way or another luring them back to the hotel and getting them to buy things uh Gurdjieff is painting sparrows and um, there's all these intentionally placed sort of indiscretions or uh, you know, unethical. But but interestingly, most people who that leads into the work, but it doesn't lead. You don't find people in the in work groups being uh, unethical in that way. It just, it just sort of seems like a flavor. Gurdjieff is able to weave into the mix without creating a a culture that's unethical, which is interesting. Well, he, I mean, surely he creates a context within which he establishes that 
he's not doing something wrong, at least implicitly. At least that, that's my reading of meetings. Sure. Um, and um, in other words, he, he's, he's not saying dudes go out and smoke that spliff and, you know, rip somebody off. You know, it, that's not that's no. not the feel of it at all. No, but, but it's more like um, I think when we watch movies and you identify with the character who might even be a criminal, that their aims and their purposes are what we're identifying with. And so uh, it's lawful for them to tweak the normal uh, mores of society yeah. in, in order to uh, attain this higher end. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. The other thing I found, is, and for anyone listening who aren't familiar with these works, I you know recommend um, in some ways, it's funny that I, I found that that book was very accessible as a just a piece of literature as an esoteric work. I think it's even harder than the others because it's it because it reads so naturally as stories. And mm-hmm. and so the esoteric meaning is is all that much more subtle to really uh, uh, be present to. But as a taste or a flavor of who Gurdjieff was. It's actually, despite what people say properly, it, I don't think it's a bad place to start because it, for me, at least in my experience, it caught my heart and uh, without, without having to deal with the frustration my head would have probably had if I uh, had started with, with the, the masterwork, Beelzebub's Tales. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting that Gurdjieff chose to release the tales and not meetings. You know, meetings was released a lot later. Um, yeah. So, but we were also reading uh, in this little group of uh, sort of uh, intelligentsia, Washingtonian intelligentsia. We were also reading Bills of Cells. I think when I first moved to Washington, uh, one of my buddies read Bills of Cells all the way through in like two weeks. Whoa. Uh, but so we were so that was kind of the the introduction that I had um, initially and mm-hmm. did not know that work groups existed. Um, and while I was going to school, I met somebody who was had studied in a Zen Buddhist monastery in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I entered into a uh, work ex- summer work exchange program through the monastery mm-hmm. and ended up staying on and and kind of being there off and on for two years. What was the uh, uh, monastery or the particular? Uh... Uh, Great Vows and Monastery. It's in Klaskenai, Oregon. And and um, what uh, strain of Buddhism uh, Zen was it uh, uh, part of? Basically a, a half and half, a 50-50 mix of Rinzai and Soto. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. So, so... they, uh, I think they're, the abbots are uh, chosen in Hogan Bays, mm-hmm. and they studied. Their most recent teacher, I think, over the last twenty years was uh, Shoto Harada Roshi, who's a okay. Rinzai mm-hmm. Rinzai teacher that comes down to Whidbey Island, I think, and leaves retreats, or at least did. Mm-hmm. So they had kind of a an interesting mix of half Soto, half Rinzai. So. Some of the Soto practices are much more expansive, um, like Shikantaza practice, where you're not focusing on any particular thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Rinzai is the exact opposite, where you are laser focusing in on one thing, um, 
with more of the samurai energy. Yeah. Uh, so there's, they kind of had, I think that was a, a way to balance yeah. kind of different students need different things. So, so, so they were able to, uh, direct different students and their different needs to the, uh, to the practices that would most benefit them. Is that, is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, I think they were very skillful in, in cool. uh, yeah, giving people kind of practices that would work for them. Mm-hmm. So, so what was that? What was that like for you? How did that? How did that land for you? Obviously, obviously for a while there, it must have meant something since you were more or less, or at least off and on, continually engaged for a couple of years. You said. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's um, you know a monastic setting. Uh, an intensive monastic setting uh, has a, if something's difficult, it just strips away your ability to hide. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you are hiding under drugs or hiding under a persona or hiding under plenty of sleep or whatever, <laughs> whatever you're hiding under, uh, whatever the, you know, once the, the more that you, uh, the more difficulty you encounter, you just have to access deeper levels of your stuff. So it brings everything up. And so for me, it was extremely challenging. Um, and, um, you know, I had a series of, of experiences there that were, uh, almost felt like they were destabilizing me. And so I, I eventually made the choice that I needed to leave and mm-hmm. have an ordinary job and, and try to integrate. I did, I did not even, I didn't understand really what was happening mm-hmm. at the time, but, um, in retrospect now, maybe 10 years later, um, I can understand more of some of the changes that were going on, but. Well, can, um, you just, can you describe yeah, so, what that destabilization was and what these changes? Yeah, so I was I was having experiences of of um, like plant consciousness, mm-hmm. baby consciousness, mm-hmm. other forms of consciousness. Uh, my awareness while I was sleeping would be moving around my body and um, mm-hmm. even out of my body and mm-hmm. or trying to go out of my body, but mm-hmm. I was afraid to let it go out of the body. It, so there was a totally, uh, my, con- my concrete sense of experience was sort of dissolving. I see. Uh, so, so you couldn't rely on the fact that you could go to sleep and uh, maybe have a few dreams that you might remember or might not remember and then wake up more or less the same person. There was other stuff going on to, that's what you mean by destabilization, I think. Yeah, right? I was having sort of, um, at a physical level, sort of experiencing my physical, my physical experience became, uh, came under question even. It started to feel like reality hmm. itself was uh, yeah. empty. Uh, like and, a Philip K. Dick novel, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, so even though I was doing mostly uh, body embodiment practice. I was just scanning the body all day long in meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it started to, you know, like I say, I was just experiencing totally different forms of consciousness. Um, and have it, I had 
Christian visions and I, Christian visions. You said Christian, Christian visions. Uh -huh. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would just a light would open inside of the room and I'd have some huge blowout experience of heaven. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And but then come back out of that and just feel totally like nothing had happened. So this and is sort of make me feel like I, I really started to become. Uh, worry, like I was going crazy or something. Yeah, I see. So you were. This was when you're like 20, 21, and like that. 19 years old. And 19 it, years it, old. Okay. Then and immediately started sitting retreats and having all these things happen, and so, I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, I mean, my my recollection or my understanding from Buddhist traditions is there's not a lot of focus or a lot of uh, 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 feedback for that kind of thing. Is that was that well, your the the inexplicable thing at this point is I I didn't tell them what yeah. was going on. Yeah. Um, I told them I for some reason I had a I told them that I was worried that I was going crazy and I, yeah. that I didn't feel stable. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't tell them about these visions and experiences because they didn't on the one hand they didn't seem relevant to Trevor the personality mm. uh, and and sort of. You know, Tre Trevor was trying to open his heart and become looking for a connection and trying to develop on the character level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, and so for whatever reason, I didn't I didn't tell them what was everything that was going on. But that is quite that's not uncommon in intensive meditation for people to have visionary experiences. Sure. Um, and I think they deal with it quite properly as. Uh, something not to be attached to. Right. I mean, so that, the recommendation is that those are, and then they call them macchio or illusions. And you're just supposed to keep, keep on going. Yeah. No what are they? What are they uh, there's a joke, a, com a comic strip I saw once where the, one of the uh, uh, Zen priests is explaining this wonderful vision. And the teacher says, if you breathe correctly, it'll go away. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so I viewed it as, like this is macchio. This is yeah. this is um, mm -hmm. who knows what is causing this. I'm certainly no saint to be having visions. Um, so I, I just kind of took it as this is just something that's happening, and I just tried to weather it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was really young at the time. Really wanted to have a girlfriend, and a whole bunch of things happened that I ended up leaving and yeah. kind of establishing a more you know lay life. Yeah. But um, at the same time, it's uh, completely rocked my whole world. Um, and probably the most significant experience while I was there was just in the middle of terrible, terrible anguish, emotional anguish, mm -hmm. having an experience of this expansive universal love like I had never experienced before. Mm -hmm. Um, like there was this boundless love that would just hold this person, Trevor, or anything, anything I could possibly experience, I could love. And that's something that's um, not a continuous part of my experience, but it's something that when things get really difficult, I know it's there. So I kind of left and, and things sort of stabilized and mm -hmm. kind of went back to normal. But um, it, uh, it definitely changed 
changed my understanding of life in a very profound way. Okay, so um, uh, this all is very clear and, uh, and understandable, and 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 the fact that at your at that early at that young age that you needed to also experience just being a man in the world um, makes sense. So you went ahead uh, to to gain those those experiences and and clearly did. So what what happened after that? Yeah, so I mean, I'm 30, almost 31 now, mm-hmm. and it, I had the sense that I would, at the time, somehow I knew that I would need about 10 years to establish myself as a, on the character level, as a person in the world, to mm-hmm. really be grounded in myself as a personality in the world. Mm-hmm. And I can say now that I feel like I've done that to a point where if I went back into um, meditation, I would feel confident, but I felt like I needed to take some time to really, like you say, get established in the world. And so at the same time that I was in the monastery um, doing all of that, I was also intensively studying Beelzebub's tale. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, apparently you're an intense guy. <laughs> apparently. And uh, I knew somehow when I, when I, at the time I knew that I would, I, when I saw Beelzebub's cell for the first time, I knew that I would understand it. Wow. This, this immediate feeling of knowing with the book. Just, just seeing the book is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's seeing that's, the book. That's yeah. interesting to me because my, my uh, when I was the age you're describing, like 19, I went to, uh, I, I uh, had gone to high school in uh, Cupertino, California, in the Bay Area. And I didn't go, I didn't go immediately to college. Well, I went, I did go immediately to college and I dropped out. But I went up to a bookstore in Palo Alto near Stanford and they had this esoteric room room of esoteric materials in the back of the store and at the very far shelf sort of towards the bottom there was the Gurdjieff stuff and I remember having this palpable sense that there was like energy emanating from those books and I couldn't touch it yet I literally couldn't touch the books yet I could see them and I knew that they were meaningful to me but I was scared of it I was scared of myself, you know, and self, self examination at the time. So I, I just had to leave, leave it aside. So it's, you know, uh, uh, you, you were jumping in faster than I was at that time. Um, you know, different, different sets of circumstances for different people. But, um, but it's interesting that, that you had that, that, uh, an experience that feels similar to, uh, to what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. So, so just the book itself is that, that's interesting. So, so as you, as you engaged with it, uh, both in your, uh, while you were in the monastery and presumably afterwards, you continued to read it. Is that the, like, was yeah, it, was, obviously I had a little bit more time yeah. <laughs> when I wasn't, because the monastic schedule is quite intense. Yeah. I think I was averaging three or four hours of sleep a night while I was there. Wow. Um, 
but the so when I left, yeah, I would take um, I would just take time and 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 just really study Beelzebub cells. I found a reading group online. Because oh. at the time I looked online and there was actually a website. I don't know if it still exists where you can look up groups mm-hmm. across the world and it shows a world map with little uh, balloons coming up that you can click on and it will tell you yeah. where it is and who runs it. And I ended up finding a reading group in Salt Lake City with Bonnie Phillips, Tay Haynes, Michael and Julianne, a small group in Salt Lake City that would meet and read every Saturday morning and, and do movements once a month. So were um, you back were you back in Salt Lake City at that so point? Actually, so what what actually happened? So I was I was in college, dropped out of college, joined the monastery. I was actually only going to go to the monastery for the summer exchange. And I was going to move to China and go to a school in China. Wow. Plan. And I've already related what happened when I started sitting yeah. at the monastery. And so it became, I had to kind of stick with that for a little bit. Um, and then I, I moved back home for a couple of months after I left. Um, did a little bit of traveling, but moved back home. I uh, got a job as a AAA technician. Just roadside assistance person, yep. mm-hmm. and did that as a as just something to do um, at the same time as going to a group and do my own studies and really planning on how to get back to Portland, Oregon. I knew I wanted to move back, yeah. but at the time I didn't know anyone in Portland, so I did that for about a year and a half, and through the reading group in Salt Lake City, found the Two Rivers Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and went out and visited and had a similar kind of sense, immediate sense of coming home. Like I knew that there, this was the place I needed to, to go and be. I felt like I kind of knew everybody already. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I moved up to Aurora, Oregon and joined groups at the farm. And that's been the last eight or nine years now. So you're, you're still actively involved um, with two rivers. I am, yeah. 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 So how did that, how did, um, I mean, you, you describe feeling as if you're com- coming home to that, to that, um, uh, to that setting and that group of people. What else did you, um, what else drew you into, although that, that would be enough for most people, but I'm wondering what else, or how else were you being fed? Uh, yeah. And I, I guess I should say that I was, you know, the whole time I was reading work literature mm-hmm. among many, many other things. You know, so I was reading all of the accounts of meetings with Gurdjieff. Mm-hmm. I was studying Beelzebub's tales very intensively. Um, and, um, you know, sitting every day, going to movements once a month. So when I, went to the Two Rivers Farm, I already had kind of a relationship to the work practices. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you weren't, you weren't newbie material exactly. No, no, not really. And um, I also had the sense from having been in Zen, um, the other thing that Zen taught me is that awakening is an actual thing. <laughs> Enlightenment is a real thing. It's not just, in the Gurdjieff literature, it sort of makes it sound like, um, 
higher center, the way it's verbalized, higher center experiences, higher emotional, higher intellectual. Mm-hmm. By the time I was reading those things, I had had experiences like that and mm-hmm. viewed those through the lens of then where they don't really place a lot of importance on those mm-hmm. experiences or it's, it's kind of contextualized very differently than in the work, some of the work literature. So I, I, um, I'm kind of interested in uh, going a little deeper on this point and how you see that comparison. Yeah, I, I, because you have this unique experience, actually unique in the sense that at a pretty young age, you're able to compare these things. Yeah. That's actually not common. Yeah. And, and that's I'd unusual. Say, and I'd say for us, we've had a lot of exposure to Buddhist teachers, practitioners, practices in, in and around some of the more traditional uh, fourth way practices. And I'm interested in how you, how you bridge that gap because it's an interesting, it's at times is like, it was an interesting conundrum for me to say, how, how do I relate what I read in the Gurdjieff work to what I really uh, uh, relate and experience in um, uh, Zen meditation or other Buddhist meditation forms? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a complicated question, but um, we've got the time. Yeah. I'll, yes. I'll, uh, now that I've got the mic, you've, you've given me the mic. So I'll Excellent. <laughs> you've, but, got the, you know, you've got the talking stick. Yeah. yeah kind of, um, but I'm curious, you know, it's, I only really have experience with one, one Buddhist group, you know, and it's a large world, the Buddhist right. world. Um, so even within Zen, you know, my experience is extremely limited. Uh, but what I, so what I would say is that my sense coming to the Gurdjieff work after Zen was that Gurdjieff was actually talking about awakening and he was actually talking about the same development of consciousness mm-hmm. in Zen, but the, a different set of practices was being used. Mm-hmm. And the, the fruits of the Gurdjieff work practice are very different from the fruits of the Zen practice. But that in general within Zen, um, because of the sheer intensity of the practice setting, mm-hmm. I think more people tend to, to get to those really profound levels within their meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me like within the Gurdjieff work, there was sort of uh, that something had been missed in okay. a certain way. Uh, you know, awakening, although Gurdjieff spoke about it a lot, was mo- is kind of generally more talked about as a kind of psychological, oh, the way I said that really affected her, uh, kind of awakening, a kind of becoming aware or cognizant of something rather than a uh really radical shift of being that that that's interesting because um you know that's it they have a a little different sense of the the question and i'll i'll kind of relate how how it it comes to me one one thing you said you know, noted that i think is uh significant is that that intensity in the buddhist context i think is characteristic of the monastic setting and i sometimes wonder uh about the efficacy of the practices when it uh when people treat it as a lay practice and they you know they go to their uh, 
Zendo on you know once a week or something. Uh, whether that or, or just re just a re uh, an occasional retreat or something. Right. Whether that intensity is uh, able to be yeah maintained or the pressure cooker could be maintained. The other thing I, I guess I would distinguish with the fourth way work, which I don't see in the Buddhist work, is the systematic utilization of the factors in ordinary life as food for transformation. So in the sense that um, where whereas putting myself into a special setting might be a way to create intensity, um, I was always trained by my teacher to basically uh, take advantage of the intensity that life was throwing at me. And in fact, it was like my commitment or my interest in the process of awakening uh, generated a reciprocal response from the universe where situations, more intense situations be thrown at me, not, not to overwhelm me, but to kind of keep me in this maximal, uh, uh, as our teachers, teachers said, uh, optimum randomity, you know, this kind of, uh, uh, you're, you're kind of off all the time, but not so off that you can't function. And so, so, it's, so it's an interesting difference that, uh, I appreciated with the fourth way work that, uh, life itself was the teacher in a, not in this kind of new agey way, which is kind of more of an avoidance of actually <laughs> putting oneself, uh, into a, a, a system of actual commitment, but more in the way that, uh, once you, once you have that commitment and once you have a framework with a, a community or a school to support that, that life can become the, um, uh, will become the vehicle for transformation and you don't need specialness, ordinariness will suit because ordinariness uh, uh, can be plenty annoying. In fact, more annoying. Um, so that, that, that's one sense of difference that I have. So I, and the thing that you said that I'm kind of interested in, in your perception on is the, this notion that in the fourth way work, that there's a sense that awakening might be more of a, like a psychological realization, like uh, becoming aware of, my identification is certainly one form of awakening. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that, do you see that, that um, that's how a lot of people configure awakening in the fourth way is, is just that sort of meta level awareness uh, and sort of ability to function outside of identification. And, or do you see like uh, in the Zen sense that there's some uh, phase shift, complete phase shift uh, that uh, where the being becomes, functions in a completely different way yeah yeah because the thing is is um my experience is that we can't become completely self-aware mm -hmm. and there's a fundamental uh unity between ourselves and what we perceive in a very subtle way uh-huh. So there's a certain kind of point where psychological integration it can only go so far because we're limited beings in a certain sense. And anyway, reality is not really separate in the way that we ordinarily think that it is. So a lot mm -hmm. of that psychological character work is sort of downstream from 
reality in a certain sense. Okay, so in a, in a way, what you're saying, if I understand you, then um, the in the fourth way, for uh, there's quite a bit of focus on character work um, mm-hmm. and psychological work, and um, that the way that you're describing that, that that seems that that in itself is uh, limited because it doesn't transcend the uh, psychological in that, that you're still kind of like you're taking, you're taking the context for granted. You, you, the context is still uh, uh, sort of treated as something real as opposed. And, and so you're never going to transcend anything beyond that. If you um, keep that as the locus or the center of gravity of your work. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. I, and I think there's, um, so, so the way that, that I understand, it, and again, the, the, the fourth way also is a large, yeah, it's a small community uh, demographically in terms of, you know, all spiritual traditions, but um, there are many groups with varying <laughs> they're diverse. levels of practice and they're <laughs> right. very, very different and different ideas. Honestly, the yeah. flavor is very different. So just putting that in there as a caveat on any commentary. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, look, we're not, we're not setting you up as the authority on uh, all things fourth way or Zen. Yeah, clearly I'm not. I, yeah. I, you have a, the reason we're asking the question is you have a unique perspective and I'm just interested in, I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not even trying to say you're right or wrong. I'm, I'm just interested in the perspective because. No, hundred percent. I just wanted to throw that out as a caveat right. for talking more. So the, um, the way that I see it is that, in, in Buddhism, there's a sense in that you you go on retreat, you remove yourself from stimuli, you have a staff that cooks for you, you don't have to pay attention to the time because people are hitting bells and something sticks on pieces of driftwood, uh, and so you're, everything is done so that you can really just continuously uh, focus on whatever your practice is. And so in that context, that's probably the easiest context to create an attention where the attention doesn't wobble. It's, it actually starts to become continuously on yeah. whatever you're focusing on. And it's just apparently the way that it works that when your folk, when your, your attention is completely stabilized and it's not comparing things moment to moment to moment, and sort of constructing a cohesive sense of physical, mental, emotional reality that you, that there's boundless experiences that arise out of deep concentration. Yeah. So, but that being said, so people learn to do that in, in a meditation context and then can't take that off of the cushion or uh, it doesn't really function in running a business or, you know, they end up becoming kind of monastic, permanent monastics. And that being is useful for people to come and drink from and take back into their lives. But it's, it doesn't necessarily function well in other contexts. Um, sometimes people can't even, uh, who have like blowout openings, uh, can't function at all. Some of them end up on the streets. Right. Um, so, and this is something that contemporary psychology is not aware of at all as a phenomenon. So, um, but in any case, there's a sense in which you're, you're doing something outside of life and then you're, you're, you're stilling the mind, experiencing emptiness and then kind of 
bringing it step by step back into your life. And I think that's one of the better things that that really skillful Buddhist teachers can lead people to do. Right. And I've seen when I was at the monastery, you know, I saw people who were definitely existing in a state of concentrated emptiness, uh, but who were by their own admission were stuck there, deeply stuck. Mm -hmm. So, um, most of us, you know, our minds are so moving and we're being stimulated by the environment that that's sort of where most of us are stuck. So you can actually get stuck the other way too. Um, and that's a, that's a nice distinction. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, so then there's a sense in which that's got to be brought back into life, so to speak. And the, the brilliant thing I see Gurdjieff doing is that, um, which he describes in the chapter on hypnotism, Mm-hmm. is that I think this comes from his, because this is how he experienced it, is he was developing ways to awaken inside of life. Yes. Rather than kind of going out of life, awakening and bringing that back in so that eventually, you know, you see that ordinary mind is awakened to mind. Right. Uh, the Gurdjieff work is trying to find ways to awaken inside of a functioning mind. Yeah, maybe it's sort of uh, turning the ox- 10 ox herding pictures uh, re- in reverse or something like that, Right. kind of. So, um, and this is why I think that the Gurdjieff work is extremely relevant um, in its approach is this is what we need. You know, what we need in the world as it exists is not, not clearly not everyone can be a monastic. So we need cultural forms and practices that are potent enough to actually awaken lay people or we need some kind of um uh anyway so i think that's partly what gurdjieff was experimenting with is Mm -hmm. how do you take a moving body and teach someone while using their body how to experience stillness inside of movement Mm -hmm. that's what the movements really are is there's unity inside of the multiplicity. The total chaos of the movements can at the same time teach someone to find stillness. Um, in terms of the mind, I would say that Beelzebub's Tales is that for the mind. How do you take a person with an engaged, thinking, rational mind and find stillness inside of a moving mind? Uh, so that's something that's a, a contribution I think Gurdjieff has made that isn't fully recognized, um, but it's really profound. Well, thank thank you for for pointing that out. I mean, I I, I agree with you, um, and you made a comment earlier about different languages. The different that Gurdjieff had a very different language to talk about awakening or enlightenment than. Uh, many Buddhist traditions, and, and as you point out, of course, different Buddhist traditions have different formulations of that as well, but um, but just restricting it more or less to a sort of generalized Zen Buddhism, uh, and the language that you'll often find there. Even there, you see a different different formulations like gradual awakening versus, you know, sudden awakening. And and then Gurdjieff's coming at it from a wholly different 
angle, but I just want to also inject, you know, the uh, recognition, which I actually, you know, saw in your, in the paper that we read uh, before this conversation of yours, but um, there was a context and a, a, a specific group of people that Gurdjieff was talking to. And I don't think that these, you know, European intelligentsia folks that he was mostly engaging with in, when he was uh, doing, his, doing his work um, really would have had any idea about a phase shift of human consciousness. So he had to, so, so, so one thing I want to suggest is he's, he's framing it in a way that will, he's using a language that, that will allow those folks to at least to some extent access the generalized direction that he wants to point out to them. You know, higher, higher being, you know, higher mind, higher heart. All these, all these basic ideas, I think, are ways for, for that, uh, to articulate something that that might un- be at least approachable to mm-hmm. these folks who have who have no cultural context to to begin to understand. But now, in the 21st, you know, 100 years later, it's a it's a different context, uh, and and you know, the fact that you in college end up going to a Zen center, um, which by the way, I guess wouldn't have been impossible for me at a similar age. I'm, you know, 36 years older than you, I think. Um, but it was not, it was not something I even imagined. I could even imagine at the time. At, at the and time, nowadays people can imagine that. Well, at, and the, do at, it. at the time, uh, uh, your contemporaries and friends of ours w- would go to Tibet or would go to India. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like there was a, uh, and right. that, that, that's a bigger commit uh, and a smaller population of people who would do that. Well, also, but they were just sort of wandering around yeah. and not really having a, a focused <laughs> yeah. destination. Right. Unless they, unless they landed somewhere. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host, Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Trevor Stewart, a student of psychology, meditation, and the Gurdjieff work. He practiced in an intensive Buddhist monastic setting for two years and has studied Gurdjieff's masterwork, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, intensively, employing textual, historical, and grammatical criticism, authoring papers at the All and Everything Conference and other venues. A member of Two Rivers Farm in Oregon, he has worked with the Gurdjieff movements in both America and Europe and is an amateur pianist who studies the Gurdjieff to Hartman music. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host, Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Trevor Stewart, a student of psychology, meditation, and the Gurdjieff work. 
He practiced in an intensive Buddhist monastic setting for two years and studied Gurdjieff's masterwork, Beelzebub's Tales, to his grandson intensively, employing textual, historical, and grammatical criticism, authoring papers at the All and Everything Conference and other venues. A member of Two Rivers Farm in Oregon, he has worked with the Gurdjieff movements in both America and Europe, and is an amateur pianist who studies the Gurdjieff and the Hartman music. This issue of context is an interesting one because it, it it does open the question of whether, you know, to your point, is the Gurdjieff work relevant today? Is the language in which it was steeped, which is this sort of quasi-natural philosophy, scientific language, um, to, to get through to a, a certain kind of mind, is that language effective today? Um, and are the elements, though, the artifacts of the teaching, like Beelzebub, which uh, kind of goes beyond language in a way, or the movements, uh, are these things, and the practices themselves, are these things sufficient to reach a contemporary audience in in the way that you're describing? You know, ha- ha- so please speak to that. Yeah, well, I think I, what you pointed out, Rob, was really true that the people that Gurdjieff was speaking, I mean, Gurdjieff arrived in the you know, 19 teens, you know, right. in Europe on the European scene. Right. And he had a very small group. He's very, pretty much unknown, I would think. They became, mm-hmm. you know, they were talked about in French newspapers and stuff because they were, seemed so odd to the local people. Yeah. But this is way before the 50s and 60s, where most of the work was, groundwork was laid by T.T. Suzuki uh, and others of just bringing to the West all these practices and beginning to create a a dialogue around what they are. Mm -hmm. And so obviously we started getting back in the 50s and 60s this kind of psychological, you know, we had psychology in the West. Yeah. And it started to come together. So Buddhism in the West now is fairly psychological. Um, extremely psychological. I'd so, say extremely psychological okay. compared to what it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's a, it, it, <laughs> it's something I could go on about, but I won't. So go ahead. Yeah, because because I mean, in, in Hinduism, in um, sorry, in um, India, Buddhism was very philosophical. Yeah. And then China and Japan it was very poetic, and now it's fairly psychological. But that's what Gurdjieff was also doing. Um, but so I think that some of those, some of the language, the context, the way that he was explaining, uh, this stuff to people, the metaphors he was using, um, people could just only understand so much of what he was really referring to. Um, and there was the world wars going on. It was a turbulent time. So he had a hard time starting his institute. Mm-hmm. And all of that kind of conduced to um, maybe some misunderstandings around how much was actually possible with practice. Um, and so that, I mean, to a certain degree, those, his pupils have, they all started groups and those groups split or now there's thousands of people around the world in Gurdjieff groups still reading literature that's, um, filled with that language, filled yeah. with that uh, context. And 
I can't help but think that uh, there's maybe some things being missed there about yeah. what Gurdjieff was actually saying. So there, there's a couple things that um, I guess a couple things I'd like to respond to. Uh, one, one is this this question of this um, uh, psychology psychologicalization of Buddhism. Um, we once had a, a conversation on this show a number of years ago before his death with John Wellwood, who was uh, famous for, among other things, coining the term spiritual bypass. But he really wrote some of the early books on the need for, you know, psychology with Buddhism. And he was a student of Chogyam Trumpa, just mm -hmm. FYI. Yeah. And, and what was we had a hard time initially in the conversation trying to get our heads around why, you know, the why, the why, yeah. Uh, and it finally kind of dawned on us and we were able to relate this more that the way he configured Buddhism was this sort of unalloyed focus on transcendence, but ignoring sort of the day to day. It's not unlike what you're describing with the monastic experience. And, that, well, well, monastic versus versus play. Yeah, yeah. And, and that and that what he found and what he felt was missing and what people needed was some basic psychological work to kind of create a foundation that was stable enough to uh, ultimately partake in a stable, healthy way in uh, experiences of the transcendental. So, do you do you know what that? Uh, are you familiar with that spiritual bypass term? Yeah, I actually was under the impression Chojim Trungpa had coined that. I think I think I, th I, th I think it's generally recognized that Well Wellwood was yeah. the one who came yeah. up with that. Didn't didn't Chojim Trungpa write a book about that? He wrote a book about spiritual materialism. Right, spiritual oh, materialism. Yeah, so spiritual right. bypass is more more the kind of uh, situation where someone uh, uh, avoids dealing with uh, issues in their lives or problems in their lives or they're uh, it, treating people badly. Yeah, unethical life. treatment because they're focused on the transcendent. You're right. So they're, so they're yeah. just going to power through. Right, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, but, but the, the way he, the, and what I realized was one of the powers of the fourth way as a spiritual practice was just the thing that we were talking about earlier as uh, a potential limitation. And that's the uh, focus on the psychological uh, foundational work as a, a necessary, uh, in fact, important initial focus to becoming a responsible human being. And so that was, it was, I came to appreciate more, you know, part, part of, you know, like in a way you could say that the fourth way work in that sense, uh, represents a, a fuller tradition because it, uh, uh, shores up the psychological self such that it can be useful in the project of transformation. But I think, as you say, the literature and the, a lot of the communities now kind of in some, in some respects, and this isn't fair because this is, I haven't done a ethnographic survey here, but uh, it seems like in some cases may have lost the, uh, uh, the, the transcendental part or the, uh, the sense that uh, once, once the psychological organism is sort of stabilized and the, the, the centers are functioning more or less appropriately, that's the, that's the precondition for something else. And what is right. that something else? Yeah, yeah there's, there's, uh, there's something beyond the elementary school 
of <laughs> self, you know, kind of getting yourself right. together. I mean, we can't ever fully get ourselves together. We're just not perfectible to that degree. I don't believe. <laughs> well, I, We're fairly I, limited. I, I agree. And there are plenty of examples of, uh, of Buddhist supposedly realized masters who, for example, supported the Japanese imperial project, you yeah. know, in the early 20th century or, you know, various other um, what seem like obvious mistakes. Yeah. And um, so so that so the project of bringing uh, a transcendent awareness to all aspects of life is not something that's 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 just limited to lay people um, and that the uh, monastics have have it have it all fixed as you were pointing out earlier because the folks who can't even leave the monastery with without falling to pieces or acting um, uh, ineffectively um, if even perhaps unethically outside that supportive context that's a that's a real issue and so bringing these things together i'm i'm really glad the conversation has taken this turn because i think this is a highly relevant issue for you know the entirety of the world society at this point 100 100% i should say that the monastery i was involved with they did a lot of character work and they did you know mm -hmm. they had found a really good balance actually mm. uh for that stuff but I think in the Gurdjieff work, uh, we're just a couple of steps behind because we don't know that enlightenment's an actual thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's, uh, and, and we're not articulating it clearly and directly enough. So, so, oh, um, I mean, it's kind I, of an obfuscation of, of uh, for some reason, of. Well, let, me, let me ask you a question about this because this, this is a uh, observation I've had with. Uh, elements of the Gurdjieff work. I think as you get closer to the foundation, I um, um, see see that. I mean, in the in all and everything, there's kind of a, a a conceit, a literary conceit, which is probably not to be taken literally, of that that kind of view of a life where in the old times things were really great and then things degraded. And I noticed that there's a, a tendency in, in the fourth way, and it's not it's not inappropriate, and yet it might be overdone to resist any any commentary or uh, evolution of the teaching uh, to take into account uh, different circumstances. And it seems like uh, there's a, a kind of a frozenness about not wanting to deviate from the primary literature, as you call it, uh, for fear of wiseacring or going off the reservation. Mm -hmm. And in one sense, I, I understand why that's a good thing. In another sense, um, uh, you know, in like in Buddhism, for instance, there was a process of transmission such that, in a sense, authority, uh, dharmic authority, continued on to another generation. And... Um, uh, as such, you had the grounds for the potential for evolution or adaptation of the tradition into other contexts. Whereas with the fourth way, I kind of see because Gurdjieff was so powerful and compelling a figure, 
everyone considers themselves a you know a, a pale small thing in comparison and so mm -hmm. uh, so no one can um uh if to the extent that anyone has they, authority they can't assert their yeah. their own agency in terms right. of these yeah to the uh, extent that they have a project yeah to the extent that they have authority in protecting the tradition as opposed to uh, evolving mm -hmm. the tradition do you see that or i mean I, I do, and actually, this is something that Gurdjieff foresaw. That's mm -hmm. a part of Beelzebub's tales. Um, okay. That's quite a long conversation, mm -hmm. but essentially, Gurdjieff foresaw this. Mm -hmm. uh, so everything's okay. He made um, what do you call it? He made preparations for this. Uh -huh. So. Well, I mean, you you mentioned that I think in your paper you you quote C.S. Not uh, one of uh, Gurdjieff's uh, students who wrote a couple of books about his experiences, a really body-centered guy. So his books kind of are uh, fun to read in that sense. Um, but um, that Gurdjieff said to him that in fact, you know, the people who know me the best uh, probably uh, will, would have the hardest time understanding Beelzebub's tales to his grandson. Um, uh, whereas people who have never met me, uh, I would probably find it quite understandable. Yeah, yeah, I think he, he had a sense that people were identified with him and yeah. took him too literally. Uh, well, well, uh, put him on a pedestal. Uh, I mean, pedestal. in fact, not just a pedestal, the, the, the singular pedestal of human history, even in, in, a, in a way. And that's, you know, that is, that is a, um, that is a surrender of something that um, is absolutely needed to be able to move forward towards these um, projects of uh, awakening, enlightenment, et cetera. Yeah. So, it, so this is another difference between that you brought up, Stuart, between Buddhism and uh, the, the, fourth, the fourth way or the Gurdjieff work or whatever you want to call it, is that the need for leadership is real. And this is one momentous challenge for the Gurdjieff work is, is developing leadership and um, training, training disciplines or some, some, some mode of training people how to effectively step into a leadership role uh, in order to guide the practices forward. And I think right now there's, in general, in the work, there seems to be, you know, out of a, out of a, from a good place, you know, people not wanting to act as though they're something that they're not. And mm -hmm. so therefore not wanting to take a teachership role when they very well know, you know, that they personally are not perfected. But I think mm -hmm. that comes to some degree out of maybe a misunderstanding of how perfect you need to be yeah. in order to take a role like that. Um, and even what perfection means, right? Sure. Right. right. As you say, if you can't be perfect, then uh, uh, you don't have to worry about being perfect. Yeah. You, uh... But in Buddhism, they've had this issue with so much, you know, sexual fiduciary uh, indiscretions by gurus that they're having to make institutional reform to correct for some of those. So it's, it's a bit of the baby in the bathwater thing. We have a tendency to see a problem and throw a whole thing out rather than being a little bit more discriminating um, about what the value of a thing is 
and maybe other steps that need to be taken to mitigate, um, you know, if you give someone a lot of power within a community and they're meeting alone with people, things can happen, but it doesn't mean you need to get rid of the teachership model. Maybe, you know, in some forms of Buddhism, they just would not meet alone with uh, students or there's, there's rules that you don't touch students, uh, period. Think, things like that. There's ways to recognize that human beings have, um, will tend to get themselves into trouble. But well, throwing out the teachership model. Well, also those some of those uh, proposed solutions fail to recognize that realization that you had when you were a teenager that we're all animals, just roaming around on the planet like like herds of herds of of whatever uh, <laughs> animal you want to you want to call yeah. us. Yeah, right. And at different times, different animal come different animals come to mind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but the point is, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned institutional reform, and I, I actually don't see that as being the solution in and of itself. Not that it's necessarily bad, but I actually, I, I think, actually having a, a, a fostering a wider, a more widely held sense of discrimination about these matters is is really the way that um, that we can move forward. I mean, this is true for the issues we're talking about, it seems to me, in the fourth way about leadership, et cetera, as just as much as it's true for uh, misconduct in Buddhist um, traditions where there's this, you know, history in Asia of of a kind of authoritarian structure that was a, at least worked sort of kind of there, but totally doesn't work here. You know, mm -hmm. at least at least that's that would be my my view. So so how do we how do we address this? Well, at least one thing is this is this point you just made, which which is to foster. Um, a a sense of discrimination about what is uh, effective and what is not effective um, more widely and hold people responsible when they when they screw up as as is okay to do number one it's okay to screw up you know Sturz and my teacher um, said that's the only way you really learn is when you screw up and then you get the feedback from the universe oh I screwed up if you're open to receiving that feedback and not not sticking it into the ego, um, as it were. So, um, so, I, so, I think this is a huge cultural project that that this conversation and the work that you're that you're doing is is part of. And I, and I'm interested to hear if 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 that's if that resonates for you. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I, you know, the things that are done within the Gurdjieff work are going to influence the wider culture. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what's happening in the wider culture definitely, inter, you know, comes into Gurdjieff groups. Um, 
you know, people come into Gurdjieff groups having been influenced by what's going on in the wider culture. Right. Um, like, like, uh, like heavy metal. And uh, <laughs> you never know. Might be doing movements to electronic music soon. Um, yeah, but I think it's, you know, it's a large question, but uh, I've, I've tended to focus on Beelzebub's Tales. And mm-hmm. I've gone back and forth. It may be that Beelzebub's Tales is, is somewhat outmoded in its language and the metaphors it uses. But certainly Gurdjieff spoke about these larger intergenerational mm-hmm. shifts. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a part of the wisdom of the work, so, is well, the study of that. Yeah, so why don't we uh, take some time to uh, talk more about your work there. And just for, uh, since we've circled around and talked about Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, maybe you could just take a moment to, for listeners to just describe what, what is this work? What is, how does it figure, you know, just at, at the superficial level in the Gurdjieff canon? And maybe we can dive into some of your exploration. Yeah, well, Gurdjieff, there came a point in Gurdjieff's teaching career where he sort of gave up the idea of starting a worldwide institute. There's some question about whether he actually intended to start an institute that could become widespread, but um, he certainly had uh, ambitions for affecting the way, for bringing a teaching to the West mm-hmm. and spreading that. And when he, he kind of got to a certain age, had an automobile accident, and realized he was running out of time, and made a, a big shift, closed down his institute, and decided to put his understanding into the form of a series of writings called All and Everything. Um, the Elzebub's Tales is just one series of books within All and Everything. But uh, and Meetings Remarkable Men is another. Life is real only then what I am is a, a third. So, but Beelzebub's Tales is, you know, quadruple the size of Meetings with Remarkable Men. It's uh, apparently more difficult to understand, much more naughty, much more difficult. And it's kind of a a book filled with red herrings and uh, non sequiturs and difficult to read sen- uh, sentence structures. Um, it's really a wild book for someone to have written back in the 1920s. And and just to point out, it, it, it's unusual in the sense that he edited it for what 20 years with uh, in different groups of students. So yeah. it's like uh, so it's, it's like. The, but, bu- the book was evolved too uh, over time okay. before it was published. Yes. And and the other uh, or another point to make is when you say it was a wild thing to have written at that time, I can only agree if only because the the, the narrative has the conceit of taking place on a spaceship, um, and you know. It's not, it's not the, it's not the kind of science fiction that was present at the time. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's not the kind of science fiction you could, you could find and, and read today. But he uses that, that, that metaphorical language to accomplish his purposes. Right. 
Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, it's really, for, I mean, he was influenced by art movements at the time, like futurism, cubism, synthesism. Hmm. There was, there was other, when you actually look at the period, there were discernible influences that make it a little bit more understandable, but it, it's a work of just astounding genius and complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, to a point that it's somewhat inaccessible for most people, I would say. Um, part of what fact, I've, go ahead. I was just going to say, and in fact, uh, the recommend, you know, people read it in groups precisely because they can get help along the way from other members of the, of the reading group, right? Yeah, that's the idea. Although <laughs> most people in reading groups would not claim that they understand much or any of it. No, but, but, but you know, sometimes uh, it's uh, the shared pain is easier than uh, individual 100%, pain. hundred percent. Yeah. So it's generally it's the book itself can act as a kind of tool for interacting with other people observing yeah. oneself interacting with other people. So the book has many, many different uh, intentions other than just a thinly veiled, um, you know, Beelzebub just being a thinly veiled mouthpiece for Gurdjieff to just, you know, state all of his opinions mm-hmm. about what's going on on the earth. There's, there's uh, a deep intentionality and foresight in terms of how this book would allow people to interact with and understand each other. So, so many purposes that go beyond what you would normally expect a book yeah. to, well, to do. So, so what are the things in the, in the paper you write, you wrote and, and that I get from uh, other commentators uh, like Robin Bloor is, is the, is the way Gurdjieff structures his work um, such that you don't you don't necessarily see it unless you actually look for those structures and how those structures encapsulate meaning. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Gurdjieff Gurdjieff taught that language in the way that it's ordinarily used is. Uh, causes people to misunderstand each other, causes us to misunderstand each other. Um, we hear another person's words and we listen reflexively, basically. We kind of hear our own thoughts without realizing it. And we don't really hear what the other person means by what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So, and this is, this is, he was teaching this well before he ever wrote The Elves Tales. Um, but he always made the claim that he had kind of discovered another language, uh, an exact language, a universal mm-hmm. language right. that um, perfectly communicated an understanding between people. And this right here, we run into something that's a lot like what we talked about earlier, where this is, uh, it sounds very much like an esoteric secret language only the elect kind of get to know. There was a lot of, um, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a lot of sort of armchair intelligentsia who were really interested in the idea of kind of knowing the secrets to reality. Right. 
through the intellect in a way that uneducated people could never understand. So the way that Gurdjieff kind of spoke about this tends to have that quality, although it's not really an accurate, that's not really an accurate encompassing of what he was actually doing. But he did always make these claims that he did know a kind of mathematical language, which mm -hmm. solved the language problem, so to speak. Right. Uh, however, if he used that language, he would, you know, if he were to use that language in ordinary conversation, people would think he was crazy because it operated according to a totally different set of rules. So when it comes to bills of sales, what you find is that the sentences um, are structured in a totally unique way. And the references that the parts of a sentence make, one part of the book will be referencing other parts of the book in such a way that the reader can form a much more complete picture than if they were simply to associate randomly with the words that were being used. In other words, he's using words in a highly specific way to reference and pull together different thoughts and feelings that are much more, much more to much more accurate uh, conveyance of an understanding. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of one element of it. Um, unfortunately, it does go way beyond just communicating an idea accurately because there is uh, a, a being. A level of meaning that's conveyed um, at a being level as well, and I think right there it's uh, useful to make an analogy to then koans. Mm -hmm. uh, right. There are certain riddles or problems alongside certain ideas, certain psychological understanding that are uh, <laughs> also communicating a non-dual or or a, di a totally different level of understanding uh, that's non that's not essentially intellectual in nature it's more of leading the mind into a place of contradiction or paradox and so the look the book also has kind of is, is conveying meaning at a very profound level in that way as well well, it's been it's been described as a large, you know, thousand page koan. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy for it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, you, this point that you're making about how it uh, it contradicts itself it, on the surface, it contradicts itself um, is something, for instance, in this paper you that we've uh, read of yours, you you and, and I've seen this, you know, point made elsewhere that 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 that's precisely one of the means by which uh, study of the work can can reveal some of the deeper meanings that that he was he was very much intending to embed in the work mm -hmm. so um although I, I have to you know having said that and and, and I, I, I think you agree with that um, I'm curious, um, did you ever do koan practice when you were doing your, uh, uh, at your monastery? Very, very little. Very little, okay. But, but you had some. No authority. 
some some exposure to it um, enough to understand that it's it's being used as a uh, as a way to point to or communicate things that are normally inaccessible mm-hmm. through through language. So right. in, in that sense, it's, it has a really similar goal as Gurdjieff's exact language. So was so were, was that background helpful to you as you started to realize that Gurdjieff was pointing towards perhaps you could call them states of consciousness in the work um, that aren't readily available, or readily discernible at a, at a surface level reading of it, of uh, Beelzebub. I, have a, I mean, I made a very superficial kind of connection of, oh, this is like Zen koans. This mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. kind of something that appears insoluble, mm-hmm. but that you yet you have to work at and chew on anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, I have to say, it, it must be entirely different than Zen koans mm-hmm. uh, in other ways. It's entirely unique. So I think that... Um, for me, I think it's it's a wholly unique invention of Gurdjieff's for mm-hmm. transmitting and understanding um, so, or state of being, actually. Yeah, in so, some ways, I find the there's a state that one has to be in in order to read it effectively, <clears throat> and when you're reading it out loud, you know the sentences are complex, but if you read it out loud you know, your tone and your cadence can sort of match the scale so that when you go into these different like paragraphs that are a page long that kind of descend down and then step back up again, you know, you can use intonation to kind of uh, make that gradation. And when one is on, it flows beautifully. It's like uh, lyrical or musical. And just holding that state, almost regardless of the, Con- the conceptual content is as much a part of the practice of using that work as the so-called understanding of these uh, uh, obscure ideas. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with most of that. I think um, a common misunderstanding is that the um, is that the the book that, that the reader does not have a really specific task. With regard to, I mean, you mm. can look at these stories as a, as attention exercise. I think they really properly understood are attention exercises. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really uh, I, I noticed after studying for a while, which I hadn't anticipated, was that in studying the book intensively, I would use my attention in such a way that it would actually produce a state of concentration. Mm-hmm. That I I then kind of linked up with having done me- intensive meditation practice, mm-hmm. and that really got me thinking about um, that this was a technique for giving the mind, you know, people with moving conceptual minds something to do, something that their conceptual mind really had to engage in, and and as a way of leading them into states of deeper concentration. Um, okay. That was something I sort of stumbled into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started to notice that that was 
similar also to what would happen with the movements. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it gradually started to become more apparent how this could be a tool, more of a, a tool, a meditation tool, uh, not just for generating insight into the paradoxical nature of reality, but, but also ways of developing um, concentration. And again, like we were saying earlier, this is a totally unique way to do it. It's a way of, you know, most people's minds are like, I think a good analogy is like a racehorse. And so you can take this racehorse and you can put it in seated meditation and say, well, focus on your breath. Most people, when they focus on their breath, will start to notice that even if they can follow their breath to some degree, they start to notice the mind is still doing things. You know, there's kind of this buzzing, deeper levels of mind going on even if you're superficially focused. So there's all these levels to the mind. So skills of skills is more like taking a horse, speeding it up to the level of this runaway racehorse of the mind and mm-hmm. kind of getting a lasso on its neck and then bringing it, bringing it gradually back down uh, into a more stable, focused, uh, unified uh, way of operating. Hmm. That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. So the um, so that's one way of thinking about the reason for the difficulty of the way the stories are laid out is that yeah. it engages a, a person's mind at a bunch of different levels and brings those all into concert with each other. So you have data on this in the sense that you read you started reading Beelzebub um, when you were like in your early 20s and hadn't done any uh, intensive meditation work. And then you did intensive meditation work and were reading it. And now uh, as you work in a more traditional fourth way community and uh, express in life, you read. Um, so in those different points, how is the, experience of reading the tales uh, transformed for you? Well, it started, it started out initially as just this esoteric. Um, cool thing I mean, to I do. The, the idea of it as a koan, but as like, you know, I think it looks to most people like just kind of a dot. If you're, if you're studying the tales intensively, you're just kind of connecting dots and you can mm-hmm. kind of configure those however you want and the mind will find whatever patterns it wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of a, just a, an empty intellectual exercise. Um, so for me, it definitely started as I, I noticed that Gurdjieff was laying out dots that he was asking the reader to connect. Mm-hmm. Uh, he specifically sets the reader certain tasks. Um, and uh, so just, uh, let me, let me just stop you there. And uh, so that's what you were seeing imme- at the beginning before you did the meditation to just so, to respond to Stuart's question, the way yeah, he structured so, it. So um, the timing of it was, I wasn't sure if Gurdjieff was crazy or not. Mm-hmm. So my first question, while I was in monastic practice, mm-hmm. but starting to study the book on my own time mm-hmm. that I had, didn't have, um, was I need to determine for myself if this is actually a sane mind or not, especially if I'm going to be taking his taking his teaching seriously. Mm-hmm. 
And so I just, you know, a, a, a unsound mind is by nature very tangential and forgets itself. So if you talk to a schizophrenic person on the street, their mind is so fragmented that in the course of a sentence, they end up in a kind of word salad where there's no coherence to it at all. I'll just interject here that the uh, one one way of experiencing something like the opposite is if you go to a spiritual talk by uh, a profound teacher, they can create an apparent discursion uh, from whatever central topic they start off with and somehow wind the wind, not, not just wind back, but suddenly you find yourself back at the place where you where the the speaker started but you've gone you've you've added he's added he or she has added something to that and so so it's like the opposite of word salad even though it feels like a word salad along the way mm -hmm. although and this is a lot of the way it's possible to experience reading uh beelzebub too 100 percent. so it's not just that there's an uh a correct sequencing of ideas or an ordering of concepts there's also um, a mashing of feelings. There's, you know, there's a, a sequential way that we experience feelings, you know, so you can bring up a topic that makes someone feel that produces a certain feeling and then bring up another topic and the feeling will continue even though the conceptual landscape has changed. So there's, there's Gurdjieff's understanding of the three centers and the way that they're elicited. It, you know, he had a really uh, pretty masterful understanding of that, and that's certainly a part of the tale too. But it's operating at, at many, many levels, mm -hmm. other than just kind of conceptually. Um, but my my point was that I was saying, if I'm remembering it now, see if I get into a word salad, uh, <laughs> is that the uh, an insane person writing this, if Gurdjieff was insane. Mm -hmm. His mind should be less coherent than mine because I'm not insane. Maybe I'm not at full, full degree of sanity, but I'm not totally insane. Um, and so I would just check him on things in the book. If mm. he promises to tell us something, you know, does he tell us? And I'll be damned. He remembers for 250 pages later at mm -hmm. precisely the right place to bring up the same topic again to pick up the thread that he had left off. So the book, when you look at it, shows just an incredible coherency of mind. Um, mm -hmm. And that's so that over time that uh, I noticed that more and more and more and became convinced that Gurdjieff was a sound mind, that Beelzebub's Tales was not written by a schizophrenic. And at the same time that I was noticing the book becoming more coherent, I was noticing my own mind becoming more coherent. Huh. Uh, so I would just start to experience a kind of clarity that at first I didn't know what to associate it with, but later it started to become clear that it was working with the Elizabeth's Tales that was producing this change uh, that I hadn't anticipated. Very interesting. Um, so the so, book was your teacher in a, in a significant so, way. So the book actually was creating a subconscious benefit that I started to palpably experience, but I mm -hmm. hadn't anticipated it. 
Got it. And uh, um, so yeah. over time, hopefully I'm answering your, your initial question, Stuart. So over time, I kind of, as my understanding of the, the book increased, it just became more, a more and more a part of my experience. And because um, you can't really have a centered, focused, stable mind without it affecting your being. You know, it starts to have an effect on your sense of presence when you're when you're present with your mind as well because that's one of the levers we have on our uh our state is the state of our awareness through our mind so mm -hmm. yeah i i one thing that um i noticed and i'm interested if you've experienced this is in reading the um book there's a um you almost take on the, the cadence of the language, like one's own language changes, one's own thinking changes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, it's, an, it's an interesting phenomenon. It, it has to be really experienced. So you can't really describe it because it's a, it's a flavor of expression, but there's a, there's a rhythm and a cadence and a point of view and a being sensibility that I think gets transmitted in that through going through that book in that way. Absolutely. I think Gurdjieff calls these um, tempos of thought. Hmm. And so it's a really, it's a really significant, um, it's a really significant understanding is that where our, our, our minds and our consciousness comes in waves. It, it, it has these fluctuations to it. Yeah. So a conversation like this will have kind of like a, couple hour cycle you know and then they tend to lose energy or gain energy so there's there's cyclic ways that our our minds operate they're not just right. like computers they're like it's a reflection of our biochemistry to some degree i'm sure yeah uh, and so there's a tempo there there's a, a musical quality that our minds have yeah well, we, we feel that in conversations of um both in the radio show, we feel that in the Seekers Cafe conversations that sometimes you'll see these ascending arcs. Sometimes they'll be dropped. Sometimes they'll <laughs> precipitous drops. Precipitous <laughs> <Exactly>. drops. <Yes. laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting, Dan. Uh, we uh, so speaking of uh, ascending arcs, we are getting close to our uh, uh, time limit here. I think we got probably uh, uh, a handful of minutes left to. Um, uh, wrap up so i think the there's a couple questions we typically ask one is are there ways if people are interested in uh, learning more about what you're doing um uh to find you either online or uh, uh connect with you or connect with uh, the group you're involved in yeah i mean so people can find the two rivers farm online at uh, tworiversfarm.org i believe it is and there's a way to contact the community there um, you have a this, blog, right? I do have a blog. I hesitate to tell people about the blog, but people could also visit my blog. It's at WordPress. And it's the uh, name I operate under there is Lucid Cubed. So you can look up Lucid Cubed WordPress, and there's some, some writings there. I wrote a paper for the A&E conference, which 
Which, which for listeners not familiar, is the All and Everything Conference. Yeah, there, there's a there's an annual conference held for people who study the Elizabeth's Tales. Well, it's All and Every Gurdjieff's entire series of writings. But I presented um, in Portland, Oregon, in 2018, and wrote a paper for that. Um, but I, I work with people online and at the farm in small reading groups studying mm-hmm. Beelzebub's Tales. Oh, so okay. if people are interested uh, in communicating with me about that, I'm more than happy to talk to people. And um, Is there a way to post a link to my email? Of course. Yeah, so of course. I could, uh, d- yeah, I can put your email uh, on, on the uh, podcast link and do it in a format that doesn't allow robots to spam you. That would be much appreciated. Someone, someone <laughs> has to make an effort to convert. There may be a pre- precipitous drop in our communications if that happens. <laughs> I don't even think that robots go to our podcast. <laughs> oh, I was taking it to mean that the, the human robots, yeah. not, not the. Uh... Oh, the human. Well, <laughs> no, that, that, that's another matter. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it was really great to chat with you guys. I'd Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no, it's been uh, a, a lot of fun, uh, and, and like with so many of these conversations, we sort of once we get through the uh, kind of the background and get into um, uh, some of the work questions that are really important to you, it just uh, inspires us to want to have future uh, conversations at this forum and go, and go a little bit deeper. Yeah, and I, I actually am uh, um, quite interested to follow the work that you and other folks are doing. I mean, I've, I've read some pretty dry, not helpful stuff about um, Gurdjieff's writings. And, um, and someone who brings a, a broader perspective, I mean, that's just a, a very general description here, but someone, someone who brings a broader perspective about spiritual practice um, to their exploration of, of Gurdjieff. I think I'm, I'm finding that, that really quite intriguing and interesting. And, yeah. and, I, and so I want to keep following your work as, as I hope you will continue to develop it uh, because I think it's, I think it's um, uh, intriguing to me personally, but I'm also really happy to hear that you're working with groups not just at Two Rivers, but also online. It sounds like yeah. um, to help people with this with this uh, project. So um, keep us apprised. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Thanks, guys. It was really nice to talk to you. Bye bye. Ditto. All right. Bye bye. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've played a pre-recorded conversation with Trevor Stewart student of psychology, meditation, and the Gurdjieff work. Trevor practiced in an intensive Buddhist monastic setting for two years and has studied Gurdjieff's masterwork, Beelzebub's Tales, to his grandson intensively, employing textual, historical, and grammatic criticism, authoring papers at the All and Everything Conference and other venues. A member of Two Rivers Farm in Oregon, he has worked with the Gurdjieff movements in both America and Europe and is an amateur pianist who studies the Gurdjieff to Hartman music. Next week on the show, we offer an encore presentation to be announced from our archives. So tune in for that uh, show on Saturday, October 5th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, 
At the Thursdays at Many Rivers event series in Sevastopol, we feature Mentoring Teenage Heroes, The Hero's Journey in Stories in Theater. That's with Matthew Winkler, author of Mentoring Teenage Heroes, The Hero's Journey of Adolescence. That's Thursday, October 3rd, 2019 at 7.30 p.m. at Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sevastopol. Mentoring Teenage Heroes is written for parents, teachers, coaches, and other ex-adolescents who now guide today's teenagers along the heroic journey from childhood to adulthood, a rite of passage as old as the ancient myths that metaphorically describe it. Those myths echo through contemporary books and movies and the real-world experience of growing up. For most adults, daily life is a routine grind. For teenagers, it's an epic struggle for identity. Matthew P. Winkler has taught and mentored teenagers at middle schools, high schools, and colleges in New York, New England, China, and Japan. His passion for education has propelled him twice around the world and through all 50 states. He divides his time between California and Connecticut, traveling the world to give presentations and lead workshops related to his TED Ed video, What Makes a Hero?, and his book, Mentoring Teenage Heroes, The Hero's Journey of Adolescence. Also this week, follow your dread to the mystical heart with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff. The monthly meeting occurs on the first Wednesdays of the month, and that's happening on October 2nd, 2019, at 7.30 p.m. at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess, glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us once a month at Mini Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about this realistic path to the mystical heart. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.